Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 269 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is John Kessel, who you may remember from our panel on The Man in the High Castle back in episode 179. He's the author of such novels as Good News from Outer Space and Corrupting Dr. Nice, and such short story collections as The Pure Product and The Bomb Plan for Financial Independence. Together with James Patrick Kelly, he's edited anthologies such as Rewired, Kafkaesque, Feeling Very Strange, and The Secret History of Science Fiction. And he also teaches literature and creative writing at North Carolina State University. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, The Moon and the Other. And now here's our interview with John Kessel. All right, so we're here with John Kessel. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, glad to be here, David. Okay, and so your new book is called The Moon and the Other. So how'd this book come about? Oh, gosh. Uh, it took a took a long time for me to write this book. I was I was at it for, well, in one way or another, for 20 years. I, I, I wrote originally some stories uh, set against the background that forms the background of the book. Uh, I first started thinking about uh, this uh this alternate society called the Society of Cousins uh, on the moon um, back in the late 90s when my uh, daughter was a little girl. And I was thinking a lot about um, male versus female. It's funny. I just uh, uh, just in the news lately is this uh, memo is written by this uh, Silicon Valley guy talking about how he thinks there are biological differences between male and female brains. And that explains a lot of their differences in aptitude and behavior. Um, in a way, I was thinking along those lines, although I find that memo to be <laughs> <laughs> pretty deranged and, and full of pseudoscience. Uh, but I, I was wondering about this, uh, this basic question of, of, you know, are there biological differences between men and women? I, I, obviously, there are biological differences, but what, what do they constitute? What constitutes them? How extensive are they? What's the difference between cultural uh, influence and biological influence. I think uh, uh, many things are also uh, culturally determined. So I, and I was just thinking about that, and and then I also was wondering about how people might behave in a circumstance where they believe certain things about the difference between men and women, whether or not that was scientifically true. So uh, I imagine this uh, this uh, society uh, uh, called the Society of Cousins on the Moon that uh, is dominated by women. And it's organized along certain principles that are intended to diffuse male violence. Uh, there are men in the colony who are part of the society, but they have, uh, at least at the beginning of the founding, uh, voluntarily giving, given up certain rights for certain privileges. And so the men of the Society of Cousins are, are privileged sexually and, and socially in certain ways. But they have, uh, unless they choose to do a kind of menial and low-grade work, they, they are deprived of the right to vote. So uh, 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 I thought a lot about how this might work and, and whether it would be a stable situation. I, uh, I read a lot about primate behavior. Uh, there's a book called uh, Demonic Males. It came out in the, in the, the 90s uh, uh, by two men, one of whom is a... a I believe an evolutionary biologist at uh, at Harvard, 
and they talk about primate behavior and and the source of violence in human cultures, and they ascribe it to to male dominance behavior and a number of a constellation of other things that that the great apes do. And so, uh, what the Society of Cousins does is try to diffuse that by various various methods. Well, right. So why don't you tell us about kind of the progress? You, you mentioned this started out as short stories, right? Could you talk about just the progression of those, uh, yeah. how, how those got published? Yeah. Uh, um, th- I do this sometimes with novels. I did it with my si- time travel novel, Corrupting Dr. Nice, where I figured out a method of time travel or uh, a background. And then I uh, did a kind of uh, a couple of short stories that were sort of proof of concept short stories. And so I, I, I decided to write some stories set in this uh, background to see whether it would, it would work out for me. And so I wrote a story called uh, The Juniper Tree, which appeared in Science Fiction uh, Age, uh, around, I think, 2000 or 2001. And it, it, it came out, I thought, pretty well. And then I wrote uh, a long story called Stories for Men, a novella that was uh, really got pretty deeply into this. And it was very well received. It received the uh, James Tiptree Award for science fiction dealing with gender issues in 2002. So I, I pretty, by this point, I was already thinking I had a, I might have a novel here and I started fiddling around with it. Uh, in 2006, I, re- I think wrote the first chapter, but then I, I stalled and got distracted by other things. And I didn't come back to it until maybe 2011 uh, where I decided if I'm ever going to write this novel, I'm going to have to put my mind to it and, and, uh, and write nothing else. So I vowed I would never, I would not write another short story until I finished the novel, which was why I published no short stories for five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was interesting. I mean, the more I got into it, the more complex it got, the more, uh, in a way, the Society of Cousins and the world it, it's in is a kind of thought experiment where I don't know whether I, uh, to what degree I believe the, the principles behind the society, but I was very interested in thinking about how people might live in this world and what kinds of people. I, I also feel that people aren't all the same. And so, you know, some people might feel well suited to this, this uh, uh, social structure and others uh, might re- rebel against it very strongly. Uh, and then I also thought about the place of the Society of Cousins within the larger culture, which is not organized that way. So I, in my lunar world of 2148, which is when the novel takes place, there are 27 different separate lunar societies or colonies. Uh, and all of them but the Society of Cousins are more uh, along traditional patriarchal lines or uh, they don't have uh, a female dominance, and they are deeply suspicious of the society, which has tried to to uh, separate itself from the rest of the of the solar system, but still has uh, uh, some economic and uh, scientific and other interactions with the rest of the world. So uh, it made, made me think. Uh, uh, one of the principles I thought, or one of the forerunners of this, I thought of was the certain idealistic s- groups or sects that came to North America from Europe uh, during the col- colonization of North America. Uh, people like the Shakers, Quakers, the uh, Oneida community, uh, which was involved free love. Uh, these people were very much out of keeping with the society they were formed in and, and were, were persecuted. And so they moved someplace where they could be far away from others. And that's how I imagine my society of cousins starting. In the afterward, you thank Benjamin Rosenbaum for sort of encouraging you to keep writing these stories. What stage was that at? 
That was uh, that was pretty early. I, I was in uh, at a Sycamore Hill workshop uh, where Ben was, and I, I really am a great admirer of his work. And he's about one of the most brilliant writers of speculative fiction uh, that I know. And uh, he was fascinated by stories for men. He really liked that story. And he, he said, you should write a novel set in this world. And I said, well, I don't know if I've got a novel's worth of of story in me, but he, he really encouraged me. And actually, the novel that I started writing was going to be set pretty much exclusively outside of the Society of Cousins, uh, showing how the character from Stories for Men, uh, Erno, uh, uh, who was exiled from the Society at the end of that novella, uh, uh, makes his way in the world after he has to live in a, uh, uh, the rest of, of uh, lunar societies. And uh, ben urged me to go back to the society and include that in there and have some sort of contrast or conflict between it and the others. And so that that was in my mind um, uh, from what he said about it. Although he never he never saw it uh, after we after we talked about it uh, in the in the early aughts. Because hmm. I haven't read the stories. There's two other ones though, under the lunchbox tree and sunlight or rock. That's right. And actually, Sunlight or Rock was originally the first chapter of of uh, The Moon and the Other. But in fact, it ended up not being the first chapter. And I, the events that occur in that story do are referred to in uh, The Moon and the Other in a flashback in Chapter 5, which if you've read, uh, you know that uh, Erno has come in his possession an artificial hand that he stole from someone. And the story of how he came to have that and steal it was the, the, the plot of, uh, of Sunlight or Rock. And, um, uh, but it's sort of a minor uh, uh, preparatory story in, in the novel. Well, that's kind of interesting because the part in the novel where he steals the hands, I think, is in the libertarian lunar colony, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. And in in that story, I have a much. A, a, it's a longer story than in the flashback. It's it's considerably longer, and it's also considerably different. I changed a great number of things, but I, uh, it's set in this libertarian colony, which I have developed considerably for that short story. I was I was doing my little riff on libertarianism when I wrote that story. Could you talk a little bit about some of the ideas you developed for how that society runs? Well, you know, I was imagining, uh, uh, you know, a society where the government is, uh, you know, that government is best, which governs least. And the, the libertarian idea that everything is an economic, uh, their economic interactions are everywhere, that there, every interaction between human beings is an economic one. And, uh, and that uh, the maximizing uh, independence and freedom uh, for the individual is the highest goal of society. In my opinion, uh, I'm, I'm, I, in some ways, I agree with libertarians about some things, but mostly I'm terribly skeptical of libertarianism. I feel it's a kind of, I, I, you know, I feel that that it tends to lead then to the accretion of power to 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 the oligarchy. What it, is what it seems to me to, to lead to, and um, so I had I had some things I played with there. I have a thing called social deviance credit in that story where you can uh i i was thinking about how uh certain uh thinkers economic thinkers have thought that one way you control pollution is by having a setting a certain maximum amount of pollution that uh, you allow in society and then uh, different corporations that pollute can have credits and they can trade these credits so that uh if someone's a, a running a coal-fired power plant they might buy pollution credits from another company that doesn't pollute as much in order to have a more uh, of a leeway to pollute. And so what I have is social deviance credits where you can, if someone else uh, obeys the law, 
they, they're not using their social deviance credit. So you can sell that social deviance credit to someone who's a criminal. So they can have, they can break a certain number of laws or a certain degree of law, uh, with impunity as long as they have accumulated enough social deviance credit in order to make up for that. Well, I, I thought it was really funny because in that scene where there's sort of a, an alter, a street altercation going on and these, uh, these little flying robots are saying, in all disputes, entrepreneurs must relate to one another with complete transparency. Remain here until a settlement agent arrives. Yes, yes. Well, you know that strikes me as uh, you know one of the uh, the beliefs of uh, hardcore capitalists is that uh, uh, you know a, a system like this works as long as you have complete transparency and no one is information is is freely flowing and and no one can uh, easily scam someone else. Although I think that that's unlikely as well. I used to work, uh, oh, before I became a college professor, I was an editor at a commodities wire service, which uh, reported on uh, investments and the transactions in the commodities markets. So I was very interested in that. I learned an awful lot about the Chicago Board of Trade and, and the New York Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And, and you know, I saw capitalism on, uh, you know, in the raw there, that the commodities markets are uh, at that time and still are uh, relatively unregulated compared to the stock market, which is not very well regulated either. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the, there's a whole lot of um, the, the um, belief of commodities uh, traders is that the commodities markets are the kind of last bastion of, of uh, Adam Smith free market capitalism. Well, because I definitely got the idea that you're not sympathetic to libertarianism because this mayor colony, they have to have the largest police force to keep things in check. And then they've re recently suffered some sort of big um, economic collapse um, caused by out of control speculation. Right, right. I feel it, uh, that, that, you know, uncontrolled markets are, are subject to boom and bust cycles. Uh, um, certainly we've seen it historically. Yeah. I also thought it was really funny because when people are injured, they get taken to the Beneficent Dividend HMO. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say I, I, at heart, I'm, um, I, 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 t I take my characters and my stories seriously, but I have this satirical impulse. So I like to, to play with words like that and to imagine how they might. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's credible or not, but it was fun for me to come up with that kind of stuff. Hmm. Well, yeah. So, so there's this mayor libertarian colony you mentioned. There's um, the Society of Cousins, which we'll talk about more in just a bit. But then there's also this um, colony called Persepolis. Could you tell us about that? Right, right. Well, I I, um, I wanted to have a colony that was uh, um, uh, the sort of uh, opponent or or uh, a political uh, a rival to the Society of Cousins and. Uh, I, I first off figured out that it would ha the richest colony on the moon would probably be at the lunar South Pole where they have deposits of ice and water being a very a rare and necessary commodity for human beings uh, that would offer uh, any colony there uh, the opportunity to uh, prosper. And then I thought, well, I don't want to have it just be a bunch of Americans. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to go for, for some other uh, kind of of culture there that would be very advanced and and uh, uh, cosmopolitan, but would not be uh, middle class American. And so I, I hit upon the idea of uh, Iranian Im immigrants founding this colony. Uh, there are uh, numerous uh, Iranian exiles uh, uh, around the world right now, 
And they, uh, there's an area of Los Angeles, I think it's called Tarangelis, uh, because <laughs> of the number of Iranians who, who have, have emigrated there. And so, uh, I, I imagined, uh, some of these people founding this colony. And, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it is essentially, uh, it's kind of Europeanized. Uh, it's not, uh, I don't mean it to be, uh, um, run by Ayatollahs. It's not a, a, a like the revolutionary Iran that we know today uh, as a result of the Iranian revolution, which is a, a theocracy. It's not a theocracy, although most of the, the citizens are Muslim. Uh, they are uh, ecumenical. They, they uh, in a way, are harking back to um, period of Iranian culture that, that many Iranians look back to uh, uh, with, with a great... Um, uh, respect, uh, um, uh, the period under, uh, Cyrus, the great, great king, uh, when, uh, they conquered and, and, and controlled most of the Middle East. But Cyrus was noted for his, uh, open-mindedness toward other, other religions. So that, uh, for instance, the Jews were in Babylonian captivity. And at least the, the, the story is that Cyrus freed them. And, uh, and so this, uh, Persepolis is a kind of utopian Iranian culture, uh, which has its in, injustices and, and it, it is a fundamentally a capitalist society. It has a kind of, uh, maybe a social democrat society, but it has a, a large uh, industry and, and, uh, industrialists who, who are, uh, very rich. And, uh, uh, but it's a democracy. And, but it is also essentially patriarchal. Uh, it's a culture that, that still holds men as having uh, more power than women. And so I, I wanted a culture that, that would not, uh, easily, uh, uh, feel comfortable with the, the society of cousins, which is dominated by women. Mm -hmm. In the, uh, acknowledgements, you thank Fariba Parvizi for sort of advising you on Iran? Yes. Uh, Fariba is a, uh, PhD at, she got her PhD at the University of Tehran and she lives in, uh, Tehran. And is a, uh, she actually wrote a doctoral dissertation on American feminist science, feminist science fiction. I think our picture of Iran, uh, from the United States, thanks to tons of propaganda is really very impoverished. I think Iran is a fascinating country and it's, it's more complex than you would get from political debates about Iran. Uh, certainly from what the current administration would say about it. Uh, so here she is, this woman who's a feminist scholar at the University of Tehran writing about American feminist science fiction. And I met her, I've never met her in person, but I've uh, corresponded with her because when she was writing her dissertation, she was looking for an American uh, PhD in English scholar who would help her with uh, uh, her committee work there. And, and I, uh, she, she contacted me uh, long, it was quite a while ago, and, and I... Uh, I tried to help her out and I read her dissertation and I helped her. It was written in English. So I helped her with a, a number of things. And so we got to, got to be friends. And when I was writing, I told her I was writing this book and would she look at it and help me <laughs> avoid making terrible, terrible mistakes, which I may yet have made. Uh, anything that's wrong in here is, is not her fault. It's my fault. But, uh, so she did help me to some degree with this, although she, I think was, uh, uh, reticence to 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 leap in there and and uh, tell me what I should and shouldn't do too much. I mean, are are there any details that you could think of that you wouldn't have thought of if not for her uh, helping you out? 
Um, there was a, there is one where uh, in, in the first one of the, the main characters uh, who grew up in Persepolis is a woman named Amestris Escander, who's the daughter of this uh, very wealthy man who runs the water uh, mining company. And she's uh, restive. She's un, unhappy in her circumstances there. And uh, the first chapter with her, she goes out uh, clubbing. And she's uh, fairly uh, uh, sexually uh, active, and 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 uh, uh, she goes to this club, and uh, in the earliest version of that, she gets involved in a uh, basically a a temporary marriage, which is something that does occur in Iran. It's mostly to the benefit of men, and uh, uh, I showed that to Fariba, and she felt that that would that was not portrayed very uh, accurately and it was, was, was not, uh, um, it was, it was cartoonish. And so uh, I, I changed that considerably uh, given, given what she told me about that. Cause in the book, they do have 10 year marriage contracts in Persepolis. Right. 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 Uh, and you know, they have, I mean, in current Iran, a person can even have a marriage for like one night. Okay. It's a way sort of take an end run around the, the, uh, the uh, religious objections to, to adultery and uh, it is legal, but it's, it's really very uh, questionable. And, and so, uh, um, you know, most of the marriages I imagine in, in Persepolis are, are conventional marriages. They're not, they're not these sort of uh, uh, legalistic uh, marriages of opportunity, you might call them. Uh, but I think that that does still happen there, although I don't go deeply into that. Hmm. Okay, so let's get back then to the Society of Cousins again, because you do imagine that having this more matriarchal society would result in much, much less crime, right? Is that, That's is that what right. you think would happen? That's right. I Well, you know, uh, I, I do, I have to say that I do think that most violence in human culture uh, goes back to male behavior. Uh, uh, and I think that there's got to be a huge biological element to this. I think there's a lot of cultural uh, um, influence as well. And of course, not all men are, are violent. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to characterize all men as being violent, but uh, I do think that, that most of the violence comes from men. And so, uh, you know, why is that? And, and there are various theories about that. Uh, if you look at, uh, one of the things that, uh, the, uh, the book Demonic Males, it's by Richard Wrangham and Dale Peterson, uh, talks about is, uh, the difference between chimpanzee social behavior and bonobo social behavior. And bonobos uh, basically, uh, are, they're, they're equally related to human beings, 98% genetically the same, just as chimpanzees are. But their social structure is very different. Chimps are hierarchical, pyramidal structure with an alpha male and uh, uh, had many, many uh, characteristics that come from that, uh, infanticide, uh, uh, murder between tr- troops of, of, of chimps. Uh, the bonobos don't have that, uh, and their their society is societies are groups. Their troops are dominated by females, and uh, the status of the males there there is competition between males, but their status uh, is 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 determined to a great degree by who their mother is and how authoritative uh, that that mother is. And the mothers don't really seem to to gain status by 
physical violence, but rather through the gaining the acceptance of other other females. So there's a kind of uh, uh, you know you you get women on your side, females on your side, and then uh, you dominate by having uh, greater numbers. And that likewise, it seems that they have have limited male violence towards females by outnumbering the males by basically uh, a, a male. Uh, males are sort of isolated and separated from one another. They don't, they're not able to band together. And so uh, a number of these principles I tried to adapt to the Society of Cousins and, uh, you know, try to come, imagine how it would be. Uh, one is that there's a cultural uh, uh, training that goes into uh, raising boys and girls from infancy to um, uh channel any violent impulses in socially acceptable ways. So for instance, sports are a big thing for boys and in the society of cousins. Um, and, and young men are praised and famous. And, and, uh, the other thing is men can pursue any, any, uh, uh, enterprise they want, uh, uh, as, uh, if they want to become a scientist or a physician or, uh, an artist or a musician, uh, uh, all these things are things that they can do to the limit of the resources that are available to the society uh, without really having to necessarily uh, uh, be channeled into one or another um, uh, productive enterprise, although many of them do. I mean, men, men might want to do all these things, useful things. Uh, most of us want to do something with our lives rather than sit around and you know, watch TV or uh, and, and, and so men are deeply integrated into society and, and many of them feel perfectly at home in it. Uh, but, uh, they're, they make an effort to, to keep men from organizing, uh, uh, politically and to, uh, um, uh, to enable them to, to express whatever impulses they have in, in socially acceptable ways. I heard you say that there's a, a human society in Tibet or something that is sort of similar to this. Yes, uh, this is, uh, I actually was well into writing this book before I heard about them. They're called the Mosuo. And this is a society where women, uh, own, uh, have traditionally anyway, actually they, they've been sort of corrupted by the, the Chinese coming in and taking over. And, and not only that, they're, they're sort of became famous because of this, this female domination. And, and, uh, they, they, I think, are having a hard time maintaining the the traditional culture. But traditionally, women own the property. Uh, they have a thing called walking marriage, where basically uh, the husband comes to visit the wife, but doesn't live with her. Okay, and the, the men are like shepherds mostly, and 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 the uh, the women basically run the domestic household, and and they have. Uh, 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 inheritance goes through the women. And, and, uh, so in some of the, the characteristics that I, I put into the Society of Cousins are there among the, uh, the, uh, Mosul. That's really interesting because as the book goes on, so you have the men who aren't allowed to vote and there's sort of a, a men's, uh, suffrage movement going on. Right, right. And it's hard not to think of it as, um, in parallel to like the men's rights movement in contemporary America, were unfortunately, you, um, yeah. Like, were you re um, researching that or referencing that at all? Um, I was very worried that people would think I was simply trying to make a men's rights organization argument because I don't find those people very uh, compatible with my beliefs. Uh, so 
my short answer is no. I didn't want to make a parallel with a men's rights organization. Although uh, I have a group in the in the in in the story that it's referred to, uh, the Spartans are are they are the men's right guy rights guys. Okay, they are the ones who who uh, uh, you know find this society to be uh, uh, a tyranny and uh, want it uh, abolished, and uh, they feel that the men the natural male impulses are being uh, have been repressed and destroyed and uh, tyr- tyranny over boys starts at the moment they're born and the prejudice against them is huge and and uh, they they are very angry about it um, I I, uh, uh, I I feel that you know then then there are other men who are uh, you know they would like to ha- uh, have the right to vote the way the, the vote works is that if you choose to be something like maybe a garbage man or uh, uh, you know uh, 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 working at, at uh, uh, in, in low-level agriculture, like a fruit picker or something like that, in the hydroponic place, then you then you can have the vote. But if you choose to be a doctor or a lawyer or a, you know a, 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 an athlete, uh, you are uh, you don't have the right to vote. And so uh, there's a kind of social status goes with not being a voter, uh, and. Uh, but there are, are many men, I think, in the society who feel that this is not fair. And uh, uh, they we would like to see the franchise made universal. And so there's a social movement of both men and women who agree with them uh, to extend the franchise to to men. And that's what's going on in the, in the, the Society of Cousins all during this book is where there, there's an effort to do that. Well, well, right. And so there, there's sort of two different characters uh, pushing for this, right? There's this guy, Thomas Marison. Right. And then right. there's um, Hypatia, uh, Camille's right. daughter. Right. Um, could you talk about those characters? Yeah. Uh, well, Thomas Marison was uh, one of the main characters of the novella Stories for Men. And he was a, a kind of charismatic uh, alpha male guy who was, uh, uh, his work was just, uh, a general, I think he was an agricultural worker, or maybe he worked in a power plant or something like that. But, uh, he would, he had a career as stand up comedian. And, uh, uh, I, I, I like the idea of a lunar stand up comedian. You don't see many comedians on, in lunar stories. And he, but he's, uh, he's sort of like Lenny Bruce, only, only, uh, you know, uh, men's rights organization, Lenny Bruce. Okay. Really, uh, or, or basically, if you remember Andrew Dice Clay, he started out as a kind of uh, macho man, uh, anti-feminist uh, comedian, and that's what uh, Thomas Marison is like. He adopts the the uh, name, uh, calls himself Tyler Durden uh, after the character from Chuck Palahniuk's uh, uh, Fight Club, uh, but he uh, and he gets a, gets a following of young men in in the story uh, stories for men. Uh, at the end of that novella, he and Erno are exiled from the society for some things that they've done that have been very destructive. And now, but now in the novel, he's still around, uh, circling through the other lunar societies and has been, uh, continually trying to, uh, uh raise, uh, um, uh, um, political opposition to the society of cousins. He goes around talking about how oppressive it is there and how, how he, uh, is uh, uh, how he was mistreated and their revolution was was squashed. And uh, he's sort of like, uh, if you think about it, when uh, uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq under President Bush, uh, the second President Bush, uh, there were uh, 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 
Iraqi exiles who were going around talking and, and dealing with the U.S. government and, and the British governments and others talking about how awful Saddam Hussein was, which I completely agree that he was, uh, and that they were going to uh, – they represented a kind of uh, free Iraq that would be uh, instituted if the U.S. would help them overthrow Saddam Hussein. And that's essentially what he's trying to do. He is trying to get these other lunar – societies to uh, help overthrow or otherwise uh, change the regime in the Society of Cousins. And he, with the hope that someone like him, if not him in particular, would then be uh, placed in power there, representing the new democratic Society of Cousins. Uh, He's not a character, he's sort of a, a villainous character, although he's not on stage a whole lot in the Society, in um, The Moon and the Other, he is, he is there. Actually, can I just ask you about the Tyler Durden thing? Do you imagine that the that that character would be um, well known um, in the year twenty one forty nine, or would it this be sort of an obscure thing that he plucked out of uh, an this, old book? This is a completely obscure thing that he plucked out of an old book that no one ever heard of, and a lot of people don't don't even know that, and they think it's some other, and they think this might be his real name, or where did he get it from? I don't know, you know, and and so they, it's not like, no. Uh, actually, I kind of dislike science fiction books where someone 300 years from now is listening to The Grateful Dead, okay? It just seems like <laughs> yeah, maybe there's somebody there who's listening to The Grateful Dead, but it's not on the radio, okay? I, so that's sort of what I wanted. I wanted this to be a, a, a very obscure thing that he resuscitated. Um, you mentioned uh, Hypatia, Camille's daughter. She's a, a, a college professor in the Society of Cousins, and she's kind of a, a social radical who wants to change things, give uh, rights to men. But also, she's a complex character. I, I, I meant for her to be, in some ways, admirable, but in other ways, really very much an opportunist who is using this movement, again, as so many people do in political movements, to uh, aggrandize herself and to gain her own influence in the society. Right. So why don't we, uh, well, Rada, why don't we go through some of these, others? Who, are, who, are, who, are, who are some of the other major characters in the book? Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, my four main characters are a mistress. We talked about the daughter of the industrialist, the water uh, company uh, owner in Persepolis. And then Erno uh, Pamela's son, who was a uh, also in the story, Stories for Men. But again, you don't need to have read that to read the novel. But but Erno was exiled and he's spent 10 years now. He's exiled at the age of 17. So in his late tw- he's in his late 20s now. He's been uh, kicking around all these colonies. Uh, he's been basically like a guest worker or a guy without papers in all these different colonies doing terrible jobs, doing some sometimes semi-criminal work uh, in order – to survive, and he's he he regrets all the things he did that got him exiled from the Society of Cousins. But he also he's very conflicted. On the one hand, he 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 hated the Society of Cousins while he was there, but now that he's lived elsewhere for ten years, he thinks, well, you know, it doesn't look as bad as I I thought it did. Uh, that oppression that people suffer, men suffer there, uh, you know, because they were male. Uh, out here, people suffer oppression because they're poor or because their ethnicity is wrong or their race is wrong or whatever, their politics or their religion. So, so he, he realizes that, um, you know, maybe there, he's very conflicted. And, uh, then the other two characters are, are, so there's the two characters who don't live in the society of cousins at the beginning of the book. And then there are two that live within it. And they are, uh, uh, Maria Hannah's daughter, who's a kind of a, uh, 
unusual. Women in the Society of Cousins are encouraged from an early age. They, they reach major, their majority. They become citizens at age 14. Uh, but they also get kicked out of their family at that point, where th- in order to keep women from from uh, uh, using nepotism to uh, uh, gain power and have uh, uh, to try to reduce the power of individual families, uh, you get uh, women get girls get uh, separated from their family when they reach their mid-teens, and the, but they have all the rights of adults at that point, and they're encouraged to make al- alliances with other girls or other women and, and, and marry into another family. These families will have many people in them. It's not just uh, uh, two people in a family. And But Mira is not very good at, at – uh, she's not very good at, with her social skills. She She's kind of hot-tempered. Uh, her mother abandoned her and her her bro- younger brother when when she was uh, fourteen or fifteen, and as since she was an adult, she was responsible for taking care of her brother at at a very early age and wasn't ready for that. Uh, and so she has her own grievances against the Society of Cousins. Uh, she's uh, uh, now in her in mid twenties and she's a postdoc uh, uh, working in physics at a uh, at a uh, the. Uh, society's uh, materials lab, and uh, so she she's a, a, a kind of antisocial and doesn't she's not not a lot of friends, not a lot of women friends. But she's dating this guy who is probably the most popular guy in the whole colony, and his his name is uh, Carrie uh, Ava's daughter, Ava's son. Excuse me, Carrie Ava's son. People use the matronymic in the, in the Society of Cousins. And his mother uh, is very uh, influential scientist and also politician who used to be the head of the board of matrons, which is the ruling group of the Society of Cousins. So, and he's also a really superior athlete. He was a martial arts uh, medalist in the last Lunar Olympics, and uh, he's very handsome. He's charismatic. He's funny. Everyone likes him. He sleeps around. Oh, the other things sleeping around is considered to be. It's encouraged for for men because uh, sex sex is common coin in the society of cousins, and sex is unlimited. And and uh, you know, as long as you're not violent, you can have as much sex of whatever variety you want, uh, uh, as you can as you can uh, manage. And Carrie's Carrie is very popular. So uh, for Mira to be dating this guy who's such a, I mean, he's so popular that young young women have his picture on their walls in their bedrooms, uh, you know, showing him uh, doing martial arts or whatever. And uh, but but he uh, he has his own grievances, and and his main grievance is that one is no one takes him seriously, and two he has a son by uh, a, a woman he was married to, who uh, is now a teenager. He's in his mid thirties. Uh, Carrie's in his mid thirties. His son is fifteen, and he wants to have some uh, authority over his son, some custody over his son. And in this society of cousins, men have no custody over children. They they can father children, but in fact, people hardly even keep track of who the father of various children are because men have no responsibilities, no duties. They're they're freed of that, but some of them feel. Uh, unhappy about that. And I guess that's where you could make a comparison to the men's rights uh, movement here in our world. Uh, although I think sometimes they use that argument about father's rights to, as a kind of uh, excuse to, to be uh, anti, anti-feminist.
Well, right. So people are probably getting the idea. There's just a, lots of politics in this book, lots of this really, really well thought out, interesting society. And I'm just curious, you say that you showed this um, as it was in progress to a bunch of this sort of like a dream team of uh, science fiction authors. You got Karen Joy Fowler, Kish Johnson, James Patrick Kelly, and Kim Stanley Robinson, among others. I'm just kind of curious, what yeah. did they think of this as you were developing it? Well, I brought uh, portions of this book as I was writing it to the Sycamore Hill Writers uh, Workshop, which is run by uh, my friend Richard Butner. And at that, at the workshop, I, many writers had the opportunity to comment on it. And uh, I got some pretty serious critiques uh, over over things. Uh, I, there was one year I brought, I think it, it was some chapter from fairly early in the book. And, uh, there was this kind of split between, uh, older, there were women, there were like, you know, um, six or seven women writers at the workshop. And two of the women writers were Molly Gloss and Karen Joy Fowler, whom I've known for 30 years. And then, uh, three of the writers were younger women writers who are, um, like in, in their thirties or younger. And there was a real split between their reaction to the chapters I showed, uh, Molly and Karen liked them a lot. And the younger writers had many serious objections, which was very useful to me, uh, in, uh, in, in, in going back and, and trying to see exactly what I was doing. And, and, and not only that, seeing how it was coming across, because when you're dealing with these gender issues, here I am, I'm a 66 year old white male. Okay. Uh, I, I, I knew all along when I was writing this that I was could get myself into very hot water. And so I wanted to know what sorts of things people would say about it. Uh, so I did really want to get uh, uh, feedback from any number of people. And, and, and the people you mentioned are all old friends of mine. I mean, they're, those people are all pretty much my generation of science fiction writers. I'm James Patrick Kelly and I've been friends since 1980. So he reads pretty much everything I write. <laughs> and Karen, uh, you know, uh, is one of my favorite writers in the world. And I, I, I admire her more than I can say. And, and of course she's an ardent feminist, uh, one of the co-founders of the Tiptree Award. So I definitely, uh, was advantaged by having her, uh, read the book for me. So she had, uh, some, some comments. They had, they, had, they helped me a lot with the female characters. Uh, cause I, you know, um, I, I was trying to do justice to the female characters, but I, you know, there were things I, I don't, I couldn't know about, or I might easily lose track of that they, they helped me with. Why do you think there was that sort of generational split between the women writers who read the book? I think that there, it's sort of like the generational split between the second wave feminists and the third wave feminists. Okay. You know, cause some of the third wave feminists don't really like the second wave feminists and some of the second wave feminists don't like the third wave feminists. And I'm not saying that these writers like disliked each other, not that, not at all, but rather their take on things is, is a little different. So one of the things that the younger writers talked about were issues of intersectionality and, uh, uh, um, you know, really many of the things that, that we're much more aware of, uh, trans transgenderism actually i'm i'm worried now because i i thought transgenderism was a neutral term but apparently among some people it's considered to be a derogatory term and i certainly don't mean it that way uh but i i had to think about those things because uh the society of cousins is is uh 
you know, pretty much a binary culture. It's male, female. They, they decide, they, 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 they believe in biological determinism and that's a problem because they feel that if you're an XY chromosome, you're male. And if you're an XX chromosome, you're female and that's it. And so, uh, someone who is, is trans, who, uh, a trans person who, who is biologically male has the XY chromosome, but is, uh, presents as female and, and feels, uh, uh, that they are free ma- female, uh, it, it makes a, uh, is a difficult case for the Society of Cousins. They, they have some trouble, uh, dealing with those people. And, and the way they deal with it is, is, uh, they have, uh, perfected, uh, uh, what you might call sex changes. They have, they can genetically change your, your gender, your sex. And, and so, uh, and so that if you believe you are the opposite gender, then they, cost-free cost will gladly change your, your biology to match your gender perception. Uh, but some people don't, uh, don't like that. They don't, they don't, they feel that's too, too mechanical or biological, a perception of gender. And so part of the movement against, uh, uh, against the structure of the society is also includes, uh, uh, transgendered people. Uh, and, uh, but that, that part of it, it's not as gone into as much as I, as I might possibly have done it. I think some of that is a reflection of who I am and what era I came up uh, in. Although I do have one character who is uh, 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 transgendered, uh, who is fairly prominent. Uh, her name is Cleo in the book. Uh, but she's not treated very well by, uh, by Mira, <laughs> one of my main characters. I'll just throw in that in the past on the show, we've had people say transgendered and I've had people, listeners object to that and say that they would prefer transgender. So, I'll okay. Just... Okay. See, uh, I'm cl- Thank you for telling me. I'll try to remember that transgender. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm curious because one of the, the society, as you mentioned, they, um, they treat, uh, the idea that there are no biologically based statistical behavioral differences between men and women as uh, a sort of like um, 20th century fad or early 21st century fad that science has um, overthrown. Right. I'm just curious how people reacted to that um, idea. I I haven't had too much reaction to that so far, but uh, uh, now that we've talked about it, maybe I will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, I, uh, I have my uh, cousins feel that, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, that there are biological differences between male and female, and uh, they they are not. It's not simply cultural. They are not cultural determinists. They believe that that uh, there are some things, not all things, but some things are are. And again, it's not also for every individual that these things are determined, but rather that um, as a. Uh, 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 over the population, there are there are differences. So one of them being the tendency to violence. Uh, they feel that that is a male. Uh, the, not that women can't be violent. Not that women can't you know be physically violent. Not that women can't be murderers. But that the uh, the fact that that um, most murderers are men, uh, they don't think that's simply culturally determined. They think that it is biologically determined. Mm-hmm. I guess have you gotten any? What sort of? Re- I guess the book just came out. So have but have you heard uh, reactions from readers yet? 
Uh, I've had, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'll, like all writers, I think I'm pretty curious about what people think. And I, I'm interested in what general readers think. And so although my wife, Therese, uh, who's also an author, uh, says, don't ever read Goodreads. <laughs> don't go to Goodreads. But I have gone there and read a lot of the, the comments people made, and it's very interesting to me. Uh, so by and large, uh, you know, some people don't like – some people like it a lot more than others. So it's interesting the different complaints people have. One complaint is that a lot of people think the book's too complicated. <laughs> There's so many characters and so much uh, background, and uh, it's got three or four plots, and, and some people just uh, feel that it, 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 you know, it, it's uh, – it's it's too slow, but others really really buy into it. I think if you if you um, you know get into it, they will uh, you know, it carries you along. But uh, as regards these issues, there have been numbers of comments. Yeah, uh, some people feel that I, it's very interesting to me how many people feel oh the Society of Cousins is a you know a, a tyranny uh, of, of women over men, and then others say that it's sort of a imperfect utopia. And that's more what I felt it was, is that it's a, it's a, it's an imperfect society like our own, uh, uh, has its good points and it's bad, it's blindnesses and it's, it's things that it sees clearly. Uh, so, so that's, that is interesting to me. I mean, I guess when you, you put something out there, some people, and some people are going to read you, you know, they're going to make assumptions about the author, me, <laughs> that, uh, that may not in my mind, be true, but I can see how they possibly come up with it. When I was writing the book, I was worried about so many of these things. I was thinking a lot about it. And I, uh, at one point I was sort of clutched out because I felt, oh, geez, I can't write this book. It's too, uh, it's treading in really dangerous areas. And so I sat down and I wrote, uh, I wrote a bunch of bad reviews of the novel. Uh, I, I basically were just pull quotes from bad reviews. And so there were, were quotes I wrote uh, that someone could write in a bad review of my book. So some of them, one of them was, uh, this is the best science fiction novel. This is, this is 200, 2017's best science fiction novel about the gender issues of 1978. <laughs> <laughs> and another one was, uh, the author thinks he's showing us, uh, pushing the outside of the envelope when actually what he's showing us is a view from between the bars of his mental cage. Okay. So, uh, so, you know, I guess, uh, uh, I haven't seen those reviews yet, but I suppose that they could be coming. Well, right. And when you're talking about how complicated the book is, I'll, I'll point out that it's a 600 page book. So this is a, uh, a serious, uh, serious, um, seriously long book. It's a Kim Stanley Robinson doorstop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's 20, 20 years in the making. So if you divide that by 20 years, right, it's not yeah. that many. Uh, yeah. It's not that long. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, actually, if you look at the text on the pages, there's a lot of uh, letting uh, and there's fewer words per page than a lot of books. So the book is actually about 144,000 words long in the final version. So lots of books are that long. Yeah. Um, in the. Um, Book jacket. It it sort of compares this to Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed and Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Do you right. what do you think about that comparison? Uh, I am honored to be in the same <laughs> sentence with those writers. Uh, the Dispossessed is a, a very influential book. I mean, Ursula Le Guin in general, tremendously influential on my way of seeing the world. I mean, I grew up in a world. Uh, you know, I was born in 1950. Uh, I grew up in a working class. Uh, male dominated culture and um, I had to be educated 
still am, I hope, being educated. Um, and one of the people who's educated me is Ursula Le Guin uh, through her writing. And so The Dispossessed was really very uh, uh, important book to me. And, and in some ways, the book has a little bit of the kind of two cultures uh, in opposition thing that The Dispossessed has there. So I, I can see how people might draw that comparison. And I'm a big fan of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, it's funny, my wife and I are just now watching the TV series, which is one of the best adaptations of a, a science fiction book I think I've ever seen. They did it right. Uh, it's funny because we talked, you and I talked about The Man in the High Castle, uh, the adaptation, the video adaptation. And it seems to me that The Handmaid's Tale did right what the TV series of The Man in the High Castle did wrong. <laughs> in that <laughs> The Handmaid's Tale deals with the, the, uh, the social uh, differences of this world and, and the background and the subtleties of everyday behavior and how the, this change of, of women being essentially enslaved uh, um, changes day-to-day life and how other things are, are weirdly similar to the way they are today where it it doesn't really get into a lot of hugger mugger of, uh, you know, a plot and, uh, uh, the resistance and the, and the revolution and people plotting and blowing things up and sneaking around and late at night and hidden identities and all that stuff. Although there's some of that, whereas the man in the high castle, they just went immediately into, uh, the resistance against the evil Nazis and the Japanese. And, uh, I think they lost the quality of the man in the castle, the, the novel of everyday life in this very altered and strange world. Yeah, we did a, a, a panel on The Handmaid's Tale TV show. I, I loved it. I think it's just fantastic. I'm actually, don't tell me, but I'm, uh, I've read, I've watched nine of the 10 episodes, so don't tell me how, how, <laughs> how right. it goes. Yeah. I also, I'm just curious, could you talk about why you wanted to set the story on the moon and kind of what kind of research you had to do for that? Well, uh, Initially, the moon, I put it on the moon just to get away from the Earth. Uh, uh, it's funny, at one point when I was writing it, I thought, you know, I'd probably get more readers if I set this in California. But I had already set it on the moon, and, and I, I, and I like the idea of, of the, the idea that, that people might do social experiments and alter uh, the way they live uh, in settling a place like the moon. And then, uh, you know, the other things I grew up reading, uh, science fiction. There were lots of stories set on the moon when I was a boy. And I I also did a lot of research about how you would do it. There are building a livable environment on the moon is difficult. And so I wanted to really make that as plausible as I could. The more I got into it, the more I really wanted to uh, understand uh, the complexities of that. You know, where would you get energy and food and water and, and uh, oxygen and, and what are the risks and the advantages of, of living on the moon? So that, uh, that to me, I mean, I guess in some ways, I think that, that setting it on the moon also divorces you from earthly uh, considerations and associations. You can see the Society of Cousins a little bit uh, separate, you know, because it's not on the earth and, and, and Persepolis is not Iran. It's also not the United States. And so I wanted to, to divorce my societies there in conflict from, from uh, uh, what we would uh, automatically assume to be the case if it were set in uh, Canada, say. So, uh, 
so th- that's one reason I did it. And then also there's kind of a coolness factor of the moon. I wanted, oh, one reason I wanted the, the Society of Cousins is on the, the far side of the moon. And they deliberately put themselves there so they would not ever have to look at the earth. So <laughs> they, they, uh, they kind of turning their back on the earth and its history. They want to create a new history. And they want to divorce themselves from, from uh, all that went before. Uh, I think it's not possible to do that, but that's what they wanted to do. I mean, in the book, you talk about fusion plants and nanotech and biotech. Is that sort of the level of technology you think we would need before we could settle the moon? Well, I think we could settle uh, it in a small way without uh, all of that stuff. But I think fusion plants would be uh, and we don't have perfected fusion plants yet. But we uh, you know, there's H uh, um, helium three is on the on the 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 moon, which is one of the fusion reactions that you could do would would uh, require that and so it's a it's a it's a more common resource on the moon than it is on the earth so that would be a natural thing to do on the moon uh likewise um, um what was i gonna say here oh i i really what got into the idea uh, you know a lunar environment is going to be closed and unless you want to keep bringing uh oxygen or or water or other things from the earth, which is terribly expensive, you have to recycle everything. And so you have to be able to create a closed biosphere in a very small volume in, uh, to have a lunar colony that lasts. So that's one of the things I really thought a lot about. And that gave me the profession of one of my characters. Erno is supposedly an expert in environmental engineering. So that uh, because it'd be very easy in a closed environment like that for after a while, the, you know, CO2 levels might get out of control or, or they might have, uh, you know, heavy metals in the water or, or any number of other things that would make the environment poisonous. And so you'd have to balance this environment continuously. And one of the things I propose is that the Society of Cousins is very good at doing this, but they're the best on the moon at creating self-sustaining closed environments, which gives them an economic advantage over some of the others. Sounds like you would also have to be underneath a couple meters of right. regolith. Oh, yeah. Because of radiation, uh, it seems to me any long-term uh, lunar lunar colonies would have to be underground uh, unless you somehow create an atmosphere for the moon, which some people think can be done. But uh, unless that happens, you really have to protect people from radiation or they'll suffer uh, – uh, serious uh, life effects. Also, the low gravity is a problem on the moon. I didn't really talk about this much in the book, uh, but in my mind anyway, they do genetic, uh, uh, the, gen- the g- genes of the people who, who are born and raised on the moon are altered so that their, say their, uh, their bone structure is, is suited uh, to, to the moon and they don't end up with calcium leaching out of their bones and they don't end up with, uh, these, uh, terrible effects of people who, are from earth who are left in low, mi- lower microgravity for long periods of time. You mentioned that you grew up reading a lot of books set on the moon. Are there any, like, what would you say are some of the best well, you science know, fiction books on the moon? It's hard to avoid, uh, Heinlein. Uh, you know, uh, I read a lot of his stories, uh, in the fifties and sixties, sixties mostly, but, uh, uh, he wrote a bunch of stories about the colonization of the moon, and some of them are really pretty intelligent. And one of the things I have in my book is people uh, in a large domed uh, crater. Uh, 
being able to fly. And of course, that's not original to me. Heinlein came up with that idea for his story, The Menace from Earth, back in the 1950s, and, and he makes it quite plausible. And so I just am really building off of that. I have to honor the man in, in retrospect. Although his his big book that's set on the moon, uh, what's the one? The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah. It's really, I don't like that book. <laughs> and I why, not, why? Um, I feel like it, uh, it oversimplifies, uh, the politics immensely. And, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, there's a kind of, um, mechanicalness also to the plot of the book. I just, I, it's not my favorite Heinlein book. Uh, many people think it's one of his best books and I do not. Uh, I, at any rate, I thought by that stage Heinlein was becoming, kind of a, a ideological writer, uh, much more than a, a writer who's exploring things. He was telling us what things ought to be. I hope I'm not too ideological, but who knows? Well, I mean, you, just from reading this book, you are really interested in politics. Have you ever been involved in politics or how do you, how do you follow politics? Uh, I'm a, I'm, you know, I guess I call myself a social Democrat and I, I am, uh, I'm very interested in politics, probably more than my mental health could <laughs> should should uh, uh i'm very liberal and you know i was a hippie and a left winger and anti-vietnam war guy in the 60s and 70s and um and i my politics has stayed relatively the same ever since then i was you know a supporter of women's rights and you know uh i um i i feel uh i'm a i'm a dyed in the wool uh bleeding heart liberal. Uh, I, you know, my involvement in politics is mostly, I mean, I will, I've worked in the last, uh, several presidential elections, the last 20 years, every presidential election, I do volunteer work and I'm, you know, an inveterate, an inveterate, uh, I used to write letters to congressmen or the newspaper. Now I call a congressman. Uh, so I'm, you know, and I'll, I've been to many marches. Uh, so I don't know that I'm, you know, that knowledgeable. I pay attention. I know history. Uh, and I have strong opinions. I, I try to, but I try in my fiction anyway to write fiction, not, uh, attract. I don't really want to write, uh, I don't want to write an Ayn Rand novel or, uh, you know, a late Heinlein novel, frankly. Uh, early Heinlein I really like. Later stuff, not so much. Have you ever, um, talk, do you ever talk about politics with more conservative science fiction authors? Do you just kind of, avoid that subject i do uh you know i i have a fairly active uh facebook page and uh, any number i mean i have a number of conservative uh, uh friends on facebook and uh, i had one very uh, uh very diehard libertarian young man who was a student of mine at nc state who's graduated now and has sold a a, a science fiction trilogy that's not out yet. He's working on the rewrite. Uh, his name is Christopher Rocchio. And he is, he's, he's a very well-intentioned, very sm whip smart. Uh, he's, he's really very, uh, but he is as libertarian as you can possibly get. And I don't agree with that. And so we've had a few go rounds. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's good to at least try to maintain some civil, uh, relations with people whose politics are not the same as yours. Uh, but sometimes it's hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I have a couple just random questions here. You have um, one of the characters um, in the book say physics is full of dead theories, the luminiferous ether string theory. Is that <laughs> I, I, I've always been skeptical about string theory. I, I, I don't know it 
you know, my math, I, you know, I got a degree in physics uh, as an undergrad, but it was not, I was not the greatest physics student you ever saw, but I know a little science and, and there's just something about string theory that seems a largely, uh, I don't know. I really, that's just a joke, really. Okay? <laughs> I can't say that I know any reason why string theory would be wrong, but I, I'm deeply skeptical. Well, I, I think the big knock against string theory is that it's, been around for decade after decade without ever making any testable predictions. There and you go. It seems like a mathematical theory. Okay, there's so many things you can do with math that that are they're self consistent mathematically, but it doesn't mean they have a uh, they represent the real universe. Yeah, no, I thought that was funny. And then you also have um, the character Beeson say, "Information wants to be free," <laughs> and then Maggie's daughter kind of slaps him around. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think about information wants to be free? I I agree with uh, Maggie's daughter on that. I don't think that uh, <laughs> information has any volition, and that that's a that's you know that's a libertarian uh, uh, faith that I don't I don't hold. I mean, there were some science fiction authors who were saying stuff like that, right? But, oh yeah, know, sort of. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, I'm pretty good friends with Bruce Sterling, and you know the uh, the whole cyberpunk thing that that, that was happening when I was a young author in the eighties, and I. Uh, was very interested in that, and I learned a lot from reading the cyberpunks. And but that, you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, Cory Doctorow doesn't he think that information ha- wants to be free? I don't know if he does or not. Uh, but um, I just feel it's a kind of glib slogan, and and uh, you know, I think information often is is you know, it's, it's something that people made up and people control it. And, you know, it can be made on free as well as free. It's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I read the moon and the other, and then I just read all your author's notes in the collected castle. Oh, gosh. and, um, and you, um, you mentioned that you had a story, um, you, you wrote a story and then the movie eternal sunshine of the spotless mind came out and it yeah. seemed to have a suspiciously similar idea to yours. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a story I wrote called Hearts Do Not Nice Shine. It came out in Asimov's in like 84, 85. But uh, when the movie came out, I really liked the movie. But I was sitting there in the theater thinking, wow, this is like, you know, really similar to my my story. And it's about, uh, you know, my story is about this married couple that's uh, – their marriage has gone sour and they decide that they're going to – they're going to get divorced, but then the husband comes to the wife and says, let's get our memories erased instead and we'll start over again. And so uh, – and then this is a world where you can have your memories selectively erased, not not completely, but selectively. So they erase all the memories of the bad things in their marriage and they get back together again. But their personalities are exactly the same, so they do the same things over again or similar things and, and they end up breaking up in the end. And, of course, that's sort of similar to – Eternal Sunshine. And the other thing that was really weird is that I had uh, given my uh, Hollywood agent uh, in the late 90s uh, that story, and he was trying to pitch it and uh, to movie people. And he pitched it to a producer around 2000, 2001, and, uh, and he didn't take it. But then that guy ended up being one of the producers of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And so that was really weird. And um, and so for a while there, my agent and I were uh, mostly me. I, uh, he helped me, but I, I had uh, some lawyers involved and there was talk about, you know, there were some moves towards a, a lawsuit. But in the end, I uh, gave up on that. 
uh, I would have had to put a second mortgage on my house and spent, you know, a hundred thousand dollars against a, a, a movie studio with deep pockets. And finally, in the end, I don't think, uh, that movie was ripped, ripping off at all. Okay. Ideas like that are something that people get. And I don't, I don't really feel that, uh, I can't remember the screenwriter's name. He's a really wonderful screenwriter. Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman. I don't think he, I don't know if he ever saw my story, but I doubt that he had anything he got from my story. Well, it's weird because I heard actually that a producer gave him the idea. Um, uh, you know, that a producer said, I want you to write a story about a couple who they um, erase their memories of each other and, and so on. Yeah. That it wasn't something that he came up with. Well, I don't know. I, I actually, you know, it was one of those things where it would have gone on for years and I would have gotten mentally exhausted <laughs> and I would have gone financially exhausted. And it just it, it, the world isn't it's not life is too short for that kind of stuff. And, you know, so I, I, I let it go. I mean, there is this thing where Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron over the Terminator. That's the only one that I can yeah. that I'm I'm familiar with of of actually getting a settlement or something. Well, Harlan is an obsessive human being more than I am. I'm pretty obsessive, <laughs> but Harlan, you know, uh, he would he's like a probably got his his teeth into Cameron's leg there and wouldn't let go. <laughs> you know, so. Um. All right. So so I wanted to ask you too. Just do you um. In the acknowledgments, you say, uh, I must thank my editor, Joe Monty, who, although I thought I was done, generally asked a few questions that ended up making this a much better book. Could you talk about that? Yeah, uh, I'm very uh, indebted to him. Uh, I had worked on this book for years, and I thought it was really done. And so he bought it. Okay, so I thought it's really done. And then we met, and uh, he said, you know, it starts really slow. And I said, well, yeah, it's a huge book. And, you know, it's got four main characters. got to introduce all these characters. So it takes me a long time before you really get them going here. And, and, he, and he said, you know how many pages it takes before you're done? And I said, I don't know, maybe 80 pages. He says 106 pages. I said, hmm, okay. And so he said, he didn't say this in so many words, but he sort of said, what about the first chapter? The first chapter was originally this chapter where it tells how Erno, as at the age of 18, comes to uh, steal this uh, mechanical hand and, uh, in the, in the Meyer colony. And he said, uh, you know, that takes place 10 years before the rest of the novel begins. Is it necessary? And I said, well, it's absolutely necessary to establish that he has his hand because it's really a major, uh, you know, device and plot point in the, in the novel. And I, I can't get rid of that first chapter. And then I went home. And I thought about it some more and I thought, well, what would happen? Is there a way to get rid of the first chapter and then still have the information I need in the book? And so I, I, I'm not a crazy, I'm basically, I'm pretty good at working with editors. I think I will listen to an editor. Some writers, I think, have a hard time with it. And so I, I threw out the first chapter and I said, okay, now I've got to fix everything. I've got to make up for that because I can't just throw it out. I've got to do something with it. And so, but I, I, then I realized that. I could move, I had to have a different first chapter. Chapter two wouldn't work as the first chapter. So I had to make chapter three the first chapter. And then I had to, and basically it ended up the first seven or eight chapters all got shuffled around in a different order. And then I had to rewrite them. And I had to take some of the material that was in the original first chapter and make it into that flashback in chapter five. And uh, what ended up, however, was that it streamlined the plot immensely. It just was like, it was like, 
turning a key in a lock and it, it got much better. It may seem that there's a lot going on in the, in the early parts of the book and you have to get up to speed on many things, but in terms of the efficiency with which it, it presents these things and the first page of the book is much more interesting than the older first page. It, it just puts you immediately into the situation and the character uh, in a way that it didn't do that before. So uh, this was all to the good. And I was very glad that he, he suggested, he didn't tell me I should do that. I had to do this, but he, he asked questions that made me, you know, and sort of embarrassed me into thinking, well, what, what can you change? That's really interesting because, you know, I, I read the book and then I just, in preparation for this, I was looking over my notes in the early chapters and so on. And I was like, oh, well, you know, this is on the first page and that's going to be important and that's going to be important. Second page, that's going to be important that it, it really lays out all the important things uh, in a very systematic way that are going to come back later in the book. Right. Well, uh, you know, I also rewrote considerably at that point. About, it went fast. I mean, he, I met him in October. I told, sold this book a long time ago. I sold it in October of 15 or September of 15. And, and then, uh, so in October I met with him and he told this and I went home on November 1st, I started rewriting and I was done with it by Christmas. It just went really fast. You said on the Coot Street podcast that you had trouble getting an agent. Was kind of, could you talk about that? I did. Yeah. Uh, because, um, you know, I hadn't had a novel for many years and, uh, you don't really need an agent to sell short stories. And my agent had been a wonderful agent. He's, many, many people will talk to you about how good an agent he was. Uh, his name was Ralph Vicinanza. He had a very large agency, represented any number of big name authors, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, Robert Silverberg. And I was on the list there and he was really a good agent for me, but I hadn't sold a novel since, uh, Company Dr. Nice in the late nineties. So I had this now, and I I didn't when when Ralph Ralph died suddenly in I think 2010, and so I was without an agent, and I didn't look for an agent because I didn't have a novel to sell, so I didn't worry about it. Uh, but then I fin finally finished this book, and in 2000 I finished the first draft at December of 14, and uh, I went looking for an agent in you know January, and I approached a lot of agents. I approached 26 agents, and uh, of those 26, like probably 10 of them didn't even, didn't respond, didn't get around to responding to me. And then of the like 15 that were left or 16 that were left, only two of them, uh, offered to represent me. And that was after seven months. Okay. I was, I was going seven months with people either not responding or just, you know, saying no. And that was a real blow to my ego. I have to say I'd been publishing for 30 years, you know, and I thought I had a pretty good book here. And, uh, and it was not impressing anyone. Now that was the version before I did this rewrite. So maybe that didn't start as well as it might have. It could have been that. But on the other hand, it made me realize that I think, uh, we live in a world now where I guess you could call, uh, intellectual science fiction or literary science fiction is not as popular as fantasy is. And, and this book is complicated and I'm not saying it's, you know, too smart for anybody. I hope it isn't, but, but, uh, I think that it was not an easy sell. And, and I think most of these agents said, you know, this is not something they all told me, the ones who told me, you know, they, some of them were, most of them were very apologetic. Okay. They would say, look, you know, this is really good. And, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work here, but, I don't think I can sell this or it's a really tough sell or whatever. And so, so, uh, that was discouraging 
and but eventually uh uh John Silbersack uh who it's funny I met him when he was a young uh editor for Berkeley Books in 1980 uh and I hadn't seen him in 30 years and he he uh he he signed me on he was very pleased with the book and we we had a conversation about it when he after he'd read it and I could tell he got it okay he really liked it and and so uh, I said, well, would you think he can sell? He says, well, it might be difficult, but he sold it in like two months. Okay. And then that also has something to do with Joe Monty at Saga Books, which has just gotten started. And I think Joe was looking to, to uh, uh, you know, do some different things. He, he, you know, he's done a lot of different kinds of books and he's not, not unwilling to try things that maybe other publishers are, are uh, cautious about. Well, and he's a regular listener of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, so you know he's just awesome oh, all around. Okay, well, yeah, uh, it stands to reason. Das versteht sich, as we say in German. <laughs> uh. Well, and it's, I, I, I was saying this a little bit before we started recording, but this is a fantastic book. It's so, it's so well-researched and says such good characterization and dialogue, and as we've been talking about, it's so politically sophisticated and so thoughtful. And, yeah, it's, it's discouraging that you would have trouble getting this kind of book published because it's exactly what I read science fiction for is because I'm hoping to find books like this, you know, and, but so anyway, I'm, I'm glad well, Joe Monte uh, is out there. Thank, thank you so much, David. Really? Uh, I guess you're the reader I wrote it for. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really, uh, I wanted it to be a good story. I mean, that all, it's all these ideas we've been talking about. It makes it sound like it's a, uh, a tract and, and really it, it's supposed to be about these four characters mostly and their their problems. They each have their individual problems, and they have their strengths and weaknesses. And I'm really deeply into those people, and I wanted, you know, the the reader to be caught up in their stories. There's not anybody who's like particularly, you know, superhero heroic here. Uh, they all have flaws, but they also have good points and 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 good motivations. So uh, I, you know, I I really. Uh, I just wanted to tell a good story. Well, right. And I'll say for people who might just uh, if it provides any extra incentive for people to read it without ever losing the the complexity of the characters and so on, it does become more of a thriller, sort of a right. political thriller right. toward the end. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It has, uh, as my friend Wilton Barnhart, who also read the book, says, you, you cannot write this book, John, without having a CGI sequence at the end. <laughs> OK, so there's a there's a big CGI scene. That when they make the the series, uh, that they'll have to do, and and uh, so I I was always aiming for that scene. I knew that was going to be the climax of the book. It's the longest chapter in the book, and I won't tell you what it is, but it it, it involves a lot of stuff happening. So so you think there will be a a series? Of uh, God, I wish it were. Uh, you know, I I actually thought about it when I was writing it, that this would this would make a decent if Amazon wanted to do you know. Uh, uh, a couple of seasons of the Society of Cousins or the Moon and the Other that this would uh, I mean it's got all these characters it's got this intrigue it's got sex it's got male and female it's got you know super science it's got uh, you know it's got a whole lot of stuff in there you know it'd be sort of like it's it's not I don't want to say Game of Thrones but you know what I mean it's got that kind of uh, complexity to it you know well, right, and, and and it's so interesting, and there are so few science fiction TV shows that are genuinely 
fresh, you right, know, and this right, would be fresh. Right. Well, yeah, I think uh, I've watched, I only watched the first season of The Expanse, but The Expanse has some of this quality to it where you have all these characters. It has a lot more uh, explosions probably than I have, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's this future world that's very well thought out. Uh, it's complex. There's not just one place. There's a lot of different places working across purposes. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's the kind of science fiction I like to, to read. Uh, so, um, well, well, yeah, I mean, the, I, I've said many times on this show that The Expanse is my favorite show on TV, and I'm always talking it up and trying to get people to watch it. Okay, see, I didn't even know that, David, and so there you go. All right, so, uh, uh, yeah, I think The Expanse has that, that quality. It, it, it's, you know, clearly produced by people who know science fiction and love it. So, so, um, so your wife has an Amazon series, right? Does that give you a... Give you uh, in any way? Well, to... I've met the head of Amazon programming, but I don't think he knows who I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, my wife is uh, Teresa Ann Fowler, and she's a, a noted author. She wrote a novel called Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, which was a bestseller and has been made into an Amazon series. They're just re-upped for a second season. And so uh, it's funny to have been – I'm just a – I'm just the uh, plus one when, when I go with Therese to, we've been to uh, see them filming some things up in New York and also down in uh, Savannah, Georgia. And uh, it's cool, you know, it's just cool to just see how these people work. There's so many people involved in a uh, complicated TV show and so many talented people and people are generally very nice. It's really kind of interesting. I, uh, I'm just a, you know, as I say, I'm the, the, uh, I'm the arm candy for my for Therese, <laughs> Therese, but it's it's been very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, my uh, my girlfriends and I have watched the first five or six episodes of of the Z beginning of everything. We're really enjoying it. I, I think it's really really good. Well, thank you. It's a little bit unusual in that it's a dramatic series. It's only thirty minutes instead of an hour. We're so used to an hour long series or forty minutes anyway. So, in, but I I think it's good too. I I. Uh, I'm very curious. I want to see them get to, you know, it's about, it's about Zelda Fitzgerald and Scott Fitzgerald, those of you who don't know about it. And it, it starts with the beginning of their relationship, following them into New York in the early 1920s when they're drinking and partying all the time. And Fitzgerald's trying to write his second novel and Zelda is, uh, you know, very talented, but, uh, they, anyway, it's very interesting. Uh, um, it's more or less from Zelda's point of view. And, but I want to see him get to Paris. Okay. I want to see him meet Hemingway and, you know, and the, the Murphy, Gerald Murphy and, and all that stuff. Uh, so we'll see if they get there. Well, it's just so funny because he's living in this fancy uh, hotel yeah. and his editor is telling him, you got to write a short story so you can keep <laughs> living in this fancy hotel. Right. Well, he's, that was astonishing to see this is that he was making up to $5,000 for a short story in the Saturday. $5,000 was a year's wages for most people. Okay. More than most people. It was a lot more than most people made. And so he, uh, you know, this is a huge amount of money, uh, in current dollars, uh, for short stories. And so he could make more money from short stories than novels. Uh, although he made a lot of money from novels too, but, but uh, it's it is sort of fascinating. See the sets they did for that uh, hotel sequence are just astonishing. They really uh, Amazon. I mean, whatever you think about Amazon, uh, I know there are ups and downs to it, but they really have invested money in their their uh, their video production. You know, they're not going second rate. 
Yeah, no, like I said, it's a terrific show. So it's called Z, The Beginning of Everything, if people want to check it out. And Teresa has a new book just finished uh, called – well, right now it's, it's – the title's up in the air. But right now it's called uh, Scenes of Her Own Making. It's about – actually about Alva Vanderbilt, who was a woman who married into the Vanderbilt family in the 1870s and follows her life. Uh, it's got a lot of, it's sort of like Downton Abbey in the United States and during the Gilded Age with industrialists and, uh, high society, the 400, uh, it's really pretty interesting. Okay. So, so before we run out of time here, I did also want to ask you one thing that's come up on the show a couple of times is just how, um, science fiction writers, what sort of experience science fiction writers have in creative writing programs mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. I know that you you teach creative writing. Do you have like what do you, what do you think is sort of the um, the current state of science fiction writers trying to write science fiction in creative writing classes? I think that current uh, if you think about MFA programs, Master of Fine Arts programs in creative writing, uh, there is more willingness to see what you would broadly call speculative fiction in, in such programs, uh, weird fiction that doesn't follow uh, ordinary mundane reality, but. Uh, if you're trying to do genre science fiction and fantasy, I think it's still very rare to find a program that is very comfortable with it. Uh, so, but our program at NC State University has been, I think, pretty much because I'm there, and I'm not the only fiction writer on the faculty. Uh, my two main colleagues are Wilton Barnhart, author of a wonderful novel called uh, Look Away, Look Away, uh, a couple years ago, and another one called Gospel, uh, and then uh, uh, Bell Boggs. Uh, and they, they are, they're okay with, uh, a genre fiction. Uh, but we've been getting a, a steady application of, of people every year who, uh, are, are genre writers or want to be genre writers. Some of them are already well established who just want to get the MFA. So for instance, Kish Johnson was a, a student here and got her MFA here. Uh, uh, recently, just this, uh, spring, uh, Alessa Wong completed her, her MFA here. Uh, others are not maybe as well known yet, but I think they're going to be. Uh, one of the recent graduates was Cadwell Turnbull, who uh, just had a story in the, the 40th anniversary Asimov's, a uh, really wonderful story. Uh, a, a young woman named Diana Fenviz uh, wrote a novel with me uh, that uh, is called The Translators, and uh, I think it's a wonderful comic space opera uh, i hope it gets published it's on it's on uh, she has an agent and it is on submission so uh, we've been getting uh science fiction and fantasy writers coming through our program oh helena bell was one of our uh, writers a uh, uh, julie steinbacher these are all really very talented young writers uh, and andy duncan right andy duncan was a student of mine uh back in the 90s so andy is not a kid anymore but <laughs> yeah he was great to work with i very much enjoyed having andy as a student i he He's not a student anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, one of the things, however, that's coming up is that I am in now in phased retirement, which means that I'm teaching only half time. And eventually I will be uh, no longer regular faculty at NC State. So uh, we're hoping to still maintain this this genre of fiction or, or uh, at least uh, – openness to speculative fiction in the program, but to some degree, it'll depend on who they hire to replace me when that comes about. Um, all right. So we're pretty much out of time. So, um, John, do you have any just, uh, 
final thoughts or any uh, other projects you want to mention or anything? Let me put a, uh, a, a word in for my a new book. Since, one, since I've sort of cut back on the teaching, I'm writing more. And so I've got another novel completed. Uh, it's going to come out in February of next year, February of 18. It's called Pride and Prometheus. It's an expansion of a novelette I wrote that won the Nebula Award. It's uh, a story that in some ways combines uh, uh, Frankenstein and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, well, it's not a joke story. It's 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 pretty serious. Uh, uh, but it's uh, uh, the main character is Mary Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, the middle sister of the Bennett sisters. And then she meets uh, Victor Frankenstein and ultimately Frankenstein's uh, monster, his creature. Um, and uh, uh, things ensue. Uh, uh, I, I'm pretty I'm very happy with it. Actually, I think it's a pretty cool book. It's so different from The Moon and the Other. It's just uh, uh, <laughs> you're going to have to switch gears to, to get into it. But uh, um, it, as I say, it will be out in February of next year. That sounds great. I'll also just mention that there is this book, The Collected Kessel, that's up on Amazon as an ebook. It's just $6 or something for 700 pages or so of short stories So and author's notes, too. So uh, people should check that out as well. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So, yes, yeah, so I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Kessel about his new book, The Moon and the Other. So, John, thank you so much oh, for joining us. David, thanks so much. for. I, I've really enjoyed talking with you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John Kessel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Scotch62, who just gave us five stars on iTunes, and who writes that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is, quote, just what I need to take me out of the current state of affairs. So big thanks again to Scotch62 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Scott Wilcox, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue... Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, Visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.